like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about a friend I had. You, some of you have heard about him before. His name was Bob Odell. Uh, one of the first Christians I met when I came to Warrington. Uh, we became very close friends. Uh, after I had left one dealership and gone to work in another dealership, uh, we remained close. We, we would share praise music and talk about scripture, and he'd invite us to his church, and we'd invite him to ours. And Bob called me one day, and he said, I need to talk to you. Can you come over to the house? I said, sure. And I went over, and he sat down, and he said, John, I'm, I'm out of time. I have a terminal illness. And I said, I, I was totally surprised. I didn't even know Bob was struggling. And I said, well, what can I do for you? He said, pray, pray that the Lord will use the time that I have to glorify him. Pray that I will face this without being afraid. So Bob was out of time, and it made me wonder, what do we do with our time? That, that's what our passage is about today. It's about time. And it's there underneath the surface. We're going to look at the, the primary lessons that we can learn from this passage, but then, then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the other things we can learn by what we see happening here. The last time that we worked together in Luke, we found out that we all produce fruit. All of us are producing some type of fruit. And the question that we should ask ourselves is what type of fruit are we producing? Because there's only two types, there's good fruit and bad fruit. And once we ask ourselves that question and examine ourselves and determine what type of fruit we're producing, we, that should lead to another question. And that question is, who's eating the fruit that we're producing? Because the fruit isn't there to be pretty. It's not there to be the centerpiece for our table. It's there to feed and nourish people. So what do we nourish the people around us with? Good fruit or bad fruit? So today, we begin moving into an area where Jesus has done this, this sermon on the plain. He's, he's laid the foundation for his teaching. He's saying, this is how my ministry is going to go forth. This is what I look like. This is how I will interact with the people around me. Now he's going to begin showing us through a series of stories what that ministry looks like. So he's also going to give us, in particular this morning, the scope of his ministry. And it's really kind of breathtaking. So here's the truth that I hope to be able to demonstrate to you today. Jesus is Lord for all. Yeah, now, you know, that's something that we all know, but we're going to think about what it means today. Uh, it shows up in our songs. We'll, we'll, it shows up in our conversation. Uh, all that stuff will kind of uh, begin rolling off our back, but, but we, have to, we have to absorb it. We have to appropriate it. So I, I want to consider that truth. Jesus is Lord over all. But I also want to ask you a question is, why would that be important to you? Why would that be a vital part of your day? Why would that be appropriated, uh, used in, in your life? So our sermon title today is Space and Time. Uh, this is part 17 of God's love for everyone. I, I desperately wanted the title to this sermon to be Space, the Final Frontier. I, I just couldn't make it happen. So. I, I wanted something cosmic, so space and time, that's about as cosmic as you get. There are two stories in this passage. Uh, the first one deals with space, 
and that's verses 1 through 10. And the second one deals with time, that's verses 11 through 17. So let's look at, at how Jesus is Lord over space. Um, starting with verse 1 of chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, I, I just want you to notice Luke has this thing with continuity in, in, in his time. He, he, he doesn't always have his chronology the same as the other gospel writers do. Now, you know, there are all sorts of volumes trying to harmonize the gospels, trying to put them all together. I don't think anybody's really done us a good service with that uh, because each gospel writer has his own tone. He has his own points he wants to make and the chronologies are not the same. So if you can find this same place in Matthew, the stories are gonna be a little bit different. Luke could be concerned less about chronology. What he wants to do is demonstrate his points, who Jesus is. So Luke is, has gone through the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's got a set of different illustrations of what happens uh, and how Jesus makes these things clear. So he says, after he had finished, we don't know how long after, we don't know where, uh, he's about to tell us where, but we don't really know what order all these things fall in. And for the Jews, this wasn't a problem. For us who think with Western minds, we, we're very linear in our thinking, so we want to know, well, you know, why are you talking about that when that didn't happen until way later in his ministry? So Luke could care less. He's got something he wants us to teach us, and he doesn't want us to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how it worked together. So he says, after he had finished, uh, he entered Capernaum. This is Jesus's new hometown. It's in the middle of another one of those cities that sits at the intersection of a number of trade routes. Nazareth was way out in the middle of nowhere. He moved to Capernaum because he could teach the people there and the people that were traveling through and they would carry the gospel as they left from Capernaum and went to the rest of the world. So. He's in Capernaum, and verse 2 says, Now a centurion commanded, centurion had about 80 troops that he commanded. He had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When we see the Greek word doulos in scripture, it means slave. It, it doesn't have a whole lot of different translations, but uh, our idea of what a slave is was totally different than what the first century concept of what a slave was. Uh, so slaves very frequently in the first century were part of the household. They were kind of part of the family. Uh, there were a lot of slaves that could earn their freedom at some point and would choose not to take it because they actually had a better, higher level of living at the home that they were in. So the translators try to help us with that and call him a servant. But the word is doulos and, and he's a slave. It's just not the type of slave we're thinking about. So he's part of the family. He's highly valued. And verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking them to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, here's a picture of the synagogue. This is how it stands in Capernaum today. We took this picture in 2006. That's not the exact same building. That building was erected in the 4th century AD, but it's very similar. It was built on the foundation of the pre previous synagogue. So this is the synagogue that they're talking about. You can go there and sit there and walk through it today. And what we find out about this is that Jews had a certain appreciation for God-fearing Gentiles. They were still Gentiles, 
but they had an appreciation for him. So this centurion, unlike a lot of other Roman officials, had a good relationship with the Jews around him. And he was concerned about his slave. So he goes to the elders of the Jews, knowing that they have some authority. And he says, will you go talk to Jesus for me? And they do it. And, and they say, hey, he's a pretty good guy. He's helped us. Some of, the, some of the Gentiles that developed relationships with him became benefactors you know, with a synagogue like this. So Jesus hears what's going on, verse 6. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So the centurion knows that despite the good relationship that he has with the Jews, that the overall impression that Jews have of Gentiles is that they're filthy. And they didn't want to go into a Gentile's house lest they be soiled, lest they be contaminated. This guy understands this. And he's also humble enough to say that I've heard a lot of good things about you and I don't feel like I'm worthy to be in your presence myself. So I've asked these men to come and talk to you. And then he says in the second half of verse 6, But say the word to Jesus and let my servant be healed. Now the centurion has heard enough about Jesus that he believes that Jesus can heal the servant. And so he, he tells him why he believes this in verse 8. He says, because, because, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, the ironic thing about this is that the tension with Jesus is beginning to amp up with the spiritual leaders. And every time he encounters them, the encounter gets a little bit more frenetic, okay? The spiritual leaders of Israel do not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ, but the centurion does. When Jesus heard these things, here's how he reacted to it. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, this is a slap in the face to the Jews standing around him. It's a shocking statement. It would have offended most of the Jews. Jesus says to this man, who is the least among them, they believe that he has more faith than anyone he's met yet. Now, I, I, I hope you see how this works, because this dovetails very nicely with the teaching that that Jesus had just done to not condemn, not to judge others. The people that were watching that would have went, well, what, why is he saying that about this man here? He's not even a faithful man of God. He's not even a Jew. A lot of people would judge this man. But they judge him on what they see. And Jesus is judging this man, not even having met him face to face. He's judging him on what's in his heart. Verse 10, And those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't share with you the primary lesson that we're supposed to learn from this because it sits there right on the surface of the scriptures. We see it. And it, it's that Jesus heals. And the lesson we, we need to learn from this is that 
Jesus heals of the ultimate disease. We don't see it here, but as the teaching develops, we'll see it. He, he heals of the ultimate disease that any of us could have. He heals us from sin. And he redeems those who have faith in him. I want you to hold on to that, but I want to go a little bit deeper because I think there's something else very valuable that we can learn from this. What did you notice about this scenario, about this story? Here are a couple of things to think about. I've got two of them. Number one, number one. We know nothing of the servant. All we know about the servant is that he's a servant. So listen carefully. It is not the servant's faith that heals him. As far as we know, the servant doesn't have any. He hasn't even met Jesus. We don't even know if he knows who Jesus is. The only faith we see is the faith of the centurion. So, and it's not to say, because we've got to be careful with these things, it's not to say that the centurion had enough faith for his servant to be healed. Listen to me very carefully. Healing, when we see it in the Bible, is very seldom about the faith of the one being healed. Now, I know, I know there are passages that say your faith has healed you, your faith has made you well, your, your faith has redeemed you, that sort of thing. But those are always in the context of Jesus trying to teach the people around him something about the character and nature of his ministry and the gospel. So we've got to be careful of the context with these things because these healings that we see in the Bible always reveal something about the Lord Jesus Christ that he wants us to know. They're always teaching something. They're always making a point. I am not saying that God doesn't heal today. He does. We all know people that have been healed. We all know people that have been, at least I hope you know some people that have been healed miraculously, that have been delivered miraculously. God is a supernatural God. His ways are mysterious, so we, we can't point to somebody and go, gee, Lois, you look really godly. I know God's going to heal you today. He may, he may not. And, and I may be able to look at Charles back here and say, you know, Charles, I think you run a little short on faith. I don't think you're going to get healed if you ask for healing. We can't do that because we don't know what God's always doing. So God heals, but the healings that we see in the Bible are not always subscriptive of what happens in our Christian walk. Healing is always about the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's a testimony. It's always about God, always about God's glory. And, and if we understand that, then we understand why Paul was never healed of the thorn in his side. And if we want to be more contemporary, we understand why people like Joni Erickson were never healed of being a quadriplegic. That's her testimony. God had something better for me than healing in store. So we don't have to wonder why all of those prayers that we make for healing aren't always answered. God is always doing something. He may be doing something that we don't completely understand, but here we have a case in which a non-believer who seems to have some faith in Christ and maybe certainly doesn't know everything about him and somebody that we don't even know any of the details about gets healed. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he honoring the faith? Well, in a way, yeah. But I think there's something much bigger happening. I think there's something else that God wants to teach us. 
God is doing something greater. He heals when he wants to heal, and when he doesn't, it's because he has a better plan. Now, that doesn't always look like a better plan to us. So when we see somebody suffering and we pray for healing and they don't get healed, it doesn't look like a very good plan to us. Takes me back to my friend Bob. Out of time, he says. Pray that that God will use the time that I can honor him. I'm going to tell you something. Bob had hundreds of people praying for his healing. It didn't happen. But in the eight weeks from the moment he was diagnosed to the moment he passed into the presence of the Lord, there were literally hundreds of people coming to his house. And Bob would meet him with a smile. And they'd weep over him. I stood there and watched it. People would go and say, oh, don't worry, you're going to a better place. And he would go, you bet I am. And I'm eager to get there. And there were people that were changed, transformed, people who came to Christ because they saw the courage with which Bob faced his death. God had a better idea than healing Bob. He ended up healing who knows how many people of their sin and the consequences of sin. So the first point is that healing is about God. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up, the servant gets healed. Here's the second point. Did you notice that Jesus never went in the house? He never met the centurion. He's talking to these friends, these elders, people that are sent out. They then return to the house. Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus have to be there? Doesn't he have to lay hands on him? Doesn't he have to wave a hanky over him? Doesn't his shadow have to fall on him? I mean, shouldn't there be some manifestation of his presence? As far as the servants knows, there's no presence of Jesus Christ. So, no, he doesn't have to be physically present. Why doesn't he have to be physically present? Because Jesus is God, and he is everywhere, brothers and sisters. He is everywhere. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He's there. Creation happened in him and through him. Everything that is, everything that ever will be, is is in and through Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Lord over space. And see, this is another thing that our contemporary minds kind of lose here. We think about space. We think about Mars and the sun and the galaxies and everything. We don't think about the space that we live in. Jesus is Lord over all those galaxies. But he's Lord over this room right now. And he's here. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He's already there. We don't have to go meet him. We don't have to go somewhere else to find him. He's right here. He's right now. And the only thing it takes to come into his presence, if you've never been there before, is to fall down on your knees and ask forgiveness for your sins, repent and turn away from them, and you'll have eternal life, and he will be in you. And then everywhere you go, he'll be there too. He's the God of everything. He's the God of everywhere. So when we say he's the Lord of space, we mean all space. 
But he's also Lord over time. Watch this. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and the disciples and a great crowd went with him. Here's a picture of Nain, another one from 2006. Now, at that time, Nain was a very, very small village. There might have been 50, 100 people lived there, perhaps. Okay, uh, that chapel right there, tradition says it was built over the space where Jesus did this miracle he's about to do. When Constantine became emperor, he declared that everybody should be Christian. And, and because everybody was going to be Christian in his empire, he just had them baptized when they were babies. So this is where the idea of infant baptism came from. And so Constantine's mother, who was a very godly woman, went throughout Palestine and the Mideast building churches and chapels everywhere that some major event of the Bible happened. So every now and then, and so we need to be realistic about this, Constantine's mother didn't walk into Nain and say, okay, where did he raise this, this, this man? And they said, right over there. Because every now and then she would go, I want to build a church here. And they would go, oh, no, that's Ezekiel's property. You can't have that. So she would build the church maybe next door. So the, the church is a representation. It makes us think about what happened there in that city. So I, I don't mean to dismantle anybody's idea of all those chapels, but we need to be careful with them. So verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her, probably the whole town. The deceased is a man. He's an adult male. The only son of this woman, and he's being carried out, buried outside of town. That's how that has to happen. Now, it's significant that he's being carried out. Because when you died during that time, they generally put your body aside and had multiple viewings. The body would sit in the home for two to three days. And one of the reasons this took so long was they wanted to make sure that the person didn't slip into some kind of coma. And so after two to three days, the evidence of decay began to appear and they knew it was okay to bury him. So this then, and, and the, reason, the reason this is important is we need to understand that this man was dead, dead. He wasn't just swooning. He didn't just have his eyes closed. He wasn't in a deep sleep. He was dead. And his mother is a widow. And her situation is dire. She has nothing. She has little potential to earn anything. Now, if you read Proverbs 31, you find out that the family rotated around the woman. She did a lot of the work to manage the business and did that sort of thing. Uh, but when they were a widow, it, 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 she had no resources. So this woman is in trouble. She has no support. The man's time is at an end, and the woman's time is in a way ending. She's without hope. She's without resources. She's facing a life that's going to be very difficult for however long she may survive. Verse 13. And when the Lord... This is the first time that Luke uses the word Lord. It's the Greek word kurios. So he hasn't called him kurios yet, but Luke's trying to make a point. When the Lord, God, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now let me describe what's happening here. 
there would be a funeral procession to the outside of town. The wife, uh, the widow, would have followed the ones carrying the beer, and, and then the guests would be behind her. And in this case, it was probably a whole town. And if there were any sojourners, if there were any travelers, if there were any visitors, they were expected to get in line behind the, the other guests, behind the other grievers. And apparently, Jesus doesn't observe that tradition. It could uh, be mistaken as being something offensive, that he would be so presumptive as to approach the head of the line. But he approaches from the front. And what he's trying to signal here, he has no intention of mourning. He has no intention of grieving along with all these other people. Instead, he does something that startles everybody. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer. Now, here's the beer. It's a stretcher. It was open. Would have some, it's an elaborate stretcher, but it would have just had some blankets on it. The body would have been there. It would have been wrapped up. Okay, and Jesus touches this. And this absolutely amazes everybody because if Jesus touches the beer, he makes himself unclean. He's sacrificing something in himself to show this woman some mercy. And what he's really signaling is that mercy and compassion is more important than outward cleanliness. You can look good and you can sound good, but unless your life exhibits some mercy and some compassion, it's not doing any good. You're just clean on the outside. So Jesus steps outside of tradition and the bearers stood still, the second half of 14. And he said, young man... I say to you, arise. Now, there's not a big, a big space between verse 14 and verse 15, but I'm going to tell you something. Everybody that was there held their breath. What did he say? <laughs> and look what happened. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now again, I don't want to miss the folk, the, the, what's happening here, okay? The primary teaching is that Jesus has authority over death. You can put that with the first story. He has power over sin and power over death as well. We don't want to miss that. But as we look at the story, it would be easy to miss the focus of the story and think that it's about this dead guy. It's not. We don't know anything about him. We really don't know anything about his mother. But the focus of the story is the mother. And in Jesus' interaction with the mother, we see three amazing truths. Number one, the Lord sees her. He can see her. And she's at a point in her life when nobody's going to see her. The Lord is aware of who she is and where she is and what she's going through. Jesus knows her need. That should be an encouragement to us. Number two, Jesus has compassion on her. She's not standing there going, well, I don't know what you did wrong to become a widow. And I'll tell you something, that would have been whispered in the community. They would have judged her by her situation. Jesus has mercy and compassion upon her, and his heart breaks for her loss. 
Jesus grieves when we grieve. God grieves over every lost person. Jesus knows what heartbreak is like. And he knows what this woman is going through. And here's the third thing. Jesus speaks to her. He speaks to her need. He says, don't weep. Stop crying. And then he does for her, watch this, what she cannot do for herself. There's no way this woman can do this. So, there's a primary lesson. They're good, amen? They're good. Let's go a little bit deeper. See if there's something else we can learn. Jesus has just given the gift of time. He's given the gift of time to the Son when there was no more time. He's given the gift of time to the mother so that she can live in some dignity. He's given the gift of time to both of them so that they consider what God has done and what he's doing in their lives. See, Jesus can do that because he is the Lord of time. And he tells us so. He's the Lord of the past. He says, before, if you want to have a headache tonight, just think about this. He says, before Abraham was, I am. What? Well, that's not proper English. You can't mix tenses like that. Jesus says, I'll do whatever I want. And you need to think about what it means before Abraham was, I am. And what he's trying to tell us is that God doesn't experience time the way we do. Before creation, think about this. I, I, I want to know where God was before creation. And I want to know how long before creation, creation occurred. Time means nothing to God. Jesus is going to be there at the beginning was there at the beginning, and will be there at the end, when there is no more time. Wow, before Abraham was, I am. He's the Lord of the present. Again, in the book of John, he says, the Father and I are one. We are right now one. He's down here on earth, taking on physical form. He's the incarnation, walking flesh, manifested itself as God. So, but he says, the Father and I are now one. He's also Lord of the future. He says, I'll come again and take you to the place that I've prepared for you. And he can say that because he's there. He's there with Abraham. He's here with us. And he's there in the place that he's prepared for us. And it, from his perception, you and I as believers are there with him. I know it doesn't feel that way. There's no way we can comprehend that. Scripture says that heaven is beyond anything that we can think. And it doesn't mean that we haven't thought of it. That we're not trying to imagine what heaven's like. It means that we can't possibly imagine what it is because our minds would melt. It, too much information overload. You're talking about information overload today? You know, John... <laughs> The Apostle John gets a peek into heaven in Revelation. 
And he can't, he can't describe it. He's trying to come up with words. I don't know. There's a statue and some kind of lake. And there's fires burning and pots pouring and horns blowing. And it's just absolutely incredible. It's beyond anything you can even think or imagine. So Jesus exists before the foundation of the world. He was there before time began. And he'll be there when time ends. So look at the results of what happens in Nain, verse 16. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. Now, the people are trying to imagine who this is. And they're not quite on target, but they're going by what they know. And they know that Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. And they see Jesus doing the same thing. You know, that happens in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So they thought Jesus was like the prophets. Can't blame them too much. They're just going by what they understand, what they've already learned. What they didn't know is that the prophets were like Jesus. Jesus wasn't like the prophets. The prophets were a shadow of what was to come. The prophets were foretellers of God's plan of redemption. Jesus was the fulfillment of that plan. So people all said, said and God has visited his people. And it's funny because that's exactly the words that Zechariah used, the first words he spoke uh, when uh, John was born and Elizabeth gave him the name of John. So these things are getting repeated. God has visited his people. And the ultimate result of the two stories we see here is in verse 17. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding company, country. So folks got it wrong. They called Jesus a prophet. Not entirely accurate. He is a prophet, but he's also a priest. He's also a king. And, but the stories are spreading. And people know that there's something unusual going on. And more and more people are coming to see him because of these stories, because of these signs and these wonders that he's doing. And Jesus would teach. He would continue to teach. And then he would perform miracles. And, and sometimes he would perform miracles and do the teach. Sometimes the miracles were there to say, look, now that I've got your attention, listen to what I have to say. Sometimes he would do the teach, teaching and then perform the miracles. And the miracles were there to say, to say, see, everything I've said is true. I can demonstrate that what I'm telling you is true. And all these things affirmed that Jesus was who he said he was. So, so he's Lord over space. He doesn't have to be physically present in order for people to be redeemed. He, he's everywhere. He, he's Lord over time. And we know now that he can give time and he can take time away. He's Lord over all. Lord over everything. So why is that important to us? Why is that important to you here today? Why is it important on a parking lot, in your homes? Why is it important to know that Jesus is Lord over all? Well, it's important to know that Jesus is Lord over space because no matter where you are, no matter what's happening to you right now, he is with you. And he hears your prayers. And he knows what heartbreak you're, you're 
experiencing. He knows the joy that you're experiencing. He knows what your troubles are. He hears your prayers. And he speaks to us. Sometimes it's just in the word. And I almost hate to use that expression. Because the most powerful way of communicating God has with us is not through our feelings and our perceptions, but through the word of God. He speaks to us. And he answers our prayers. It might not be the answer we're always looking for. But it's always the best answer. And here's, here's the bonus. We're never alone. We are never alone. You may feel empty. At a time like this, you may feel tired. In times like we're going through right now, you may feel like you've been crying out to God. And he doesn't hear. And he doesn't know. But he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So not only are we never alone, we will never be alone. He's promised to be with us forever. He's Lord over space. All this is at his command. He's Lord over time. This is beautiful. Because what it says to us is no matter what you've done, no matter when you've done it, Jesus can redeem your situation. We saw that with the dead guy in name. He died. Something he did, right? <laughs> Jesus can redeem death. If Jesus can redeem death, think about what he can do with your situation right now. He can make something glorious out of it. He can make something powerful out of it. He can be the testimony, the witness of God's power and God's grace in your situation right now. No one is too far away. No one is too far gone. No one is too long gone. Jesus can and will forgive. And in him, we have more than just the time we have right now. We have eternity. We have forever. He's Lord over space and time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are Lord over all. And Lord, sometimes we, we need that reminder that, that in this case, all means everything. So we thank you that you're, you're Lord over time and space. We thank you that you're Lord over our current situation. We thank you that you're Lord over our heart. We thank you, Father, that you're moving and active and living in us and through us, Father. And we pray that we would be the walking representation of your presence and power in the world today. The people might know that you're Lord over space and time. Now I pray, Father, that you would bless each one in this room each one out in the parking lot, each one listening at home, 
all those who will listen to this later. That we might be acutely aware of your presence, Lord. That we might find our peace and find our rest in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.